Romans 5:12 to 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you publicly for the mercy and kindness that was poured out on me last Sunday. These brothers and sisters were so gracious. You were very good to us as a family, and I bless you for it. And now, Lord, as we turn toward the future and toward a new chapter in our ministry together, I pray that there would be fresh anointing even this morning. I pray, Father, that you'd give me your help as I try to minister the word now from this rich text from Romans 5. I pray for strength. I pray for spiritual illumination. I pray for love to the truth and to your people. And I pray for a gift of evangelism so that those in this room who do not know the gospel will have it become light in their minds and in their hearts and be saved even while I preach. So come, Father, and be honored by our remaining time together as we have tried, with your help, to honor you so far. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
This is not a Father's Day sermon, but with just one little turning of the dial, it could be from this text. Because in this paragraph that Tom just read from Romans 5, 12 following, Paul contrasts and compares Adam, the first man, and the father of the humanity, with Jesus Christ, the second man, as it were, the second Adam he's called, and the father of a new humanity. And here in verse 12, he says concerning that first man and father, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Now, what that implies for fathers is something really quite remarkable. And for wives and for men and women who aren't fathers. The main point in this text is is not this, but I'm going to start with this point. Namely, God held Adam accountable for the entrance of sin into the world and the spreading of that sin through death to all people. Even though the book of Genesis shows Satan attacking the woman first and her being the first one to eat of the tree. Is that not remarkable? Why is that? The reason is this, and we could preach a whole series on it. God counts men as having a special and unique role of responsibility and leadership in the home, in the church, and in society in general. Men bear a unique burden of responsibility for leadership. You see it not only here in the fact that Adam is held accountable and made the one through whom sin comes into the world, even though they were sharing in that, and she went first. But you also see it in Genesis 3 where when God comes to call the couple to account for what has just happened in this collapse into sin, verse 9 of Genesis 3 says, And God said, Adam, where are you? He did not say, Eve, where are you? She came second in the call to accountability, and Adam came first. The order of sinning had nothing to do with it in God's mind as to who was primarily responsible, accountable to lead. Adam should have behaved himself differently in that transaction in Genesis 3. And none of this is incidental. It's woven all through the Bible. God holds men accountable in a unique way as fathers, between fathers and wives and or mothers, and as husbands, as pastors, 
as soldiers to protect a land, and the story could go on. It is not a privilege to be grasped and boasted over. It is a burden to be carried and one filled with pain. And it is not only your burden, men, but if you will, in a Christ-like, sacrificial, loving way, fulfill it, it will be your glory. It will be your glory. And women everywhere will love it. That's not the main point of the text. It's a very subordinate point. It's the main point of some text, but not this one. And this is where we are, and we'll be here for the next two weeks after this one. Three weeks at least on this paragraph, and it could be a year easy. What is the main point of this paragraph? Well, let me try to tell you in a few sentences the main point and then wiggle my way into it somewhere. The main point of this text that Tom just read is that what Christ has done for all who are in him is far greater than what Adam did for all who were in him. That's the main point of this text. It's all about the superiority of the work of Christ for those who are in him over against what happened to all who were in Adam. That was stunning enough. There are parallels and there are contrasts. And the point is to show that there's a greatness about what happened through Christ that surpasses the parallels with Adam. For example, the obedience of Christ is parallel but vastly superior to the disobedience of Adam. And he's going to make that clear. Second, the righteousness imputed to those who are in Christ on the basis of this obedience is parallel to but vastly superior to the sin imputed to those who were in Adam. Third, the life that comes from the imputation of this righteousness based on that obedience, this righteousness, this life, is far superior, though parallel, to the death that we all received through our sinning in Adam. That's the main point of the text. The obedient Christ, or the obedience of Christ, even unto death, it says, remember in, in Philippians 2, 8, he was obedient, he became obedient even unto death. So his death is the crowning act of his obedience. The obedience of Christ is the foundation of the doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to believers. Now, let me step back and try to put it in the wider context here. From Romans 1.17, until now, the overarching theme of the book of Romans has been the justification of the ungodly through grace, or by grace, through faith, apart from works. That's been the theme. 
And as we arrive at verse 12 of chapter 5, that is still the theme. It's still the theme. And what Paul wants to do is take this occasion of comparing the work of Christ with the work of Adam, or the effect of Adam with the effect of Christ, and by comparing it and contrasting it, take us deeper into the doctrine of justification by grace, through faith, apart from works. That's the main point of the paragraph. It's the same teaching we've seen up till now, but we're going to go deeper and deeper. Now, here's my first question for the whole paragraph. Why does he do it this way? Why does Paul bite off such a big, hard thing to chew? This, this paragraph is probably the hardest paragraph in the book to understand. And you read it, and you have to read it so slow, and you have to say it over and over again. And those who are reading it in the original and trying to get all the sequence of thought put together and see the main point and how every piece fits together to make the main point, it gives us a headache. And it takes weeks and weeks to do this, and you take pages and pages of notes and you cross things out because it didn't work when you got down here and you thought it was working up here. And it's hard. Like Peter said, some things Paul wrote are hard to understand and people twist them to their own destruction. So I quit. my first question is, why? Why tackle this, this parallel between Adam and Christ when there are simpler ways to say the doctrine of justification by faith. There are easier ways to do it. Why are you doing it this way? That's my first question. Before I answer it, I want to make sure that you put your eyes on the proof that that's what he's doing. So, if you have your Bible still open, eyeball verse 14 with me. I just want to pick out one phrase. We'll get the context of this next week. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Now, here comes the phrase I want you to get. In the offense of Adam, who, Adam, is a type, or your version may say pattern or example, who is a type of him who was to come. That's Christ. So I want you to see, I'm not making this up. I'm not, I'm not saying uh, something that's not right there in the text. The point, this is the hinge. This is the hinge on which this text hangs. At this point, Paul is lifting the banner and waving it. Here's what I'm doing. I am going to now talk about a, a typical or a typological or a Example or pattern relationship between Adam, the first man, and Christ, the second Adam, as he's called in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what he's up to, and he calls the first man a type. Now, what does that mean, type? Adam was a type of Christ. That, that doesn't occur too often in the Bible, but several times. Adam was a type, NIV, pattern, and that's a good translation too, I think. Pattern, or you could say example, or you could say foreshadowing, or you could say um, prefiguring 
of Christ. Now, at this point, I stopped and said, I'm going to, I'm going to try to make this understandable for kids this morning. This is impossible to understand for adults almost, and I'm going to try to make it understandable for kids. Okay, so kids, you may not understand everything in these next three weeks, but try this. If we can get the big picture for kids, maybe, maybe they'll pick up some things along the way. Now, when I say that Adam is an example or a pattern for Christ, and that the reason Paul is putting the two side by side, here's Adam and here's Christ, the reason he's doing it is so that we understand better what Christ did compared to what Adam did. Now, I'll give you an example of how this works and why he's doing it. I'm after why he's doing it. One of the ways to understand things better is not just to look at them and look at them, but to look at them for a while and then look at them beside something similar but different and ask the differences. And then you start seeing more things that you didn't see when you started looking. So, here's the example. I have a dog. Sable is my dog. Cross between a lab and a springer. I like Sable. Now, if I brought you over to my house, I said, now just look at Sable and tell me what you see. What do you see? You might say, well, she's black. And she has white paws. And she has brown eyes. And she has a tail that curves up. And she has a white tip on the end of her tail. So you might see those things and say that. And I say, okay, anything else? Well, four legs, but that's obvious. And you stop. And then I say, okay, let's go down three houses and get Lady from the Livingstons. That's the Livingstons' dog. And we'll bring Lady in, and we'll put Lady beside Sable. Now tell me the difference between Sable and Lady. And then you would probably say, Sable's bigger. She's bigger. In fact, she probably weighs 70 pounds. And what does Lady weigh? 35 pounds? 50. Bigger than I thought. You're feeding her too much. <laughs> there are fatter dogs in our neighborhood, however. And then you'd say, uh, lady sort of frisky and Sable just lies there. <laughs> She's sort of laid back. You hadn't noticed that before. And then you'd, then you'd say, lady's tail um, kind of lies flat, points out like that, and and uh, Sables curls almost all the way back and touches her back. And then you might say, um, Lady's nose is thinner, and Sable's nose is thicker. And you might go on. You could do that for a long time. Things that you now see in Sable that you didn't see until you put Sable beside Lady. So the point here is that you could say a lot of things just looking at Jesus, but when you put Jesus and his achievement over against Adam and now begin to ask, how does this work relate to this work? New things are seen. And that's what this paragraph 
is up to. He wants us to understand something deeper and wider and fuller about justification by faith apart from works. Now let's go back to the question. Why did he do it? That's one reason, but there's a deeper reason. Many deeper reasons, I think. Why take this approach of unpacking more on justification? Why talk about the comparison between Adam and Christ? Well, let me mention one very powerful, fundamental reason, I think. There are others. In fact, when when I thought about which one to pick, it seems like anyone you pick begins to shed light on all of them. So you'll probably hear the tentacles of all of them or the threads woven through the one I'm picking on. Let's mention this one. Paul chooses to compare the damage done by Adam and his sin with the salvation wrought by Christ and his work because he wants us to see that the doctrine of justification by faith is not limited to any one people group or any one place or any one period in history, but is relevant and essential for all people at all times in all places. Everybody everywhere and every people group everywhere are descendants of Adam. No exceptions. Therefore, if the work of Christ is designed to repair and remedy the damage done to the descendants of Adam, tailor-made for what grows out of Adam, that means that Christ is a universal Savior. His work relates to the fundamental problem that everybody has as they are rooted in Adam and his sin. There's nobody anywhere for whom the doctrine of justification by faith is not crucial and relevant and essential. Oh, this is full of implications. When I got here in my preparation, I just thought, my, oh my, if I dwell on this, I'm not going to get this done in three weeks. But it is so important, I decided I'm going to dwell on it anyway. Because we are a mission-minded church, and we want 1,500 people, one to Christ in this year, from every people and tongue and tribe and nation. And therefore, I want to linger here for a moment. The implications of this fact, that the reason Paul brings the work of Christ, his obedience His righteousness, our justification in him based on his obedience and that righteousness into relationship with Adam and his sin and the imputation of that sin, the death that came through that imputation and shows that the one is the perfect and only solution for that problem has such tremendous implications for missions and evangelism. I simply can't pass over it. Here's the first one first implication of that. 
Jesus Christ is a very great Savior. Oh, how great our Savior is. That what He achieved there on a, on a morning, on a day, in a year, in a little teeny country, among a little group of people called the Jews, what He achieved there is so universal and so global and so extensive in history back and forward, you can't begin to overstate the greatness of the salvation that was wrought when Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died a perfect sacrifice. It is a great salvation. And the greatness of it here is highlighted by Paul by bringing, bringing it into connection to the first man from whom all six billion people have come. So that we must see the salvation in relationship to the six billion people and give him suitable praise. I mean, you might be real excited about your teacher or your parent, or the principal of your school, or the mayor of your city, or the coach of your favorite team, or the president of your country. And you might muster tens of thousands of people to praise this person because their standing in their little sphere and group is big and great and beautiful. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. And what he achieved on the cross is meant to be brought to everyone. Now that's the first implication. He is very great and his salvation is very great. Here's the second. Jesus Christ is not a tribal deity. Jesus Christ is not the Christian God. Alongside the Muslim God and the Hindu gods and the Jewish God and the secularist, non-God, God. Jesus Christ is not a tribal deity. He is not in the pantheon of deities from which to choose. He is the universal Lord and Savior. There is no other Savior. And the way Paul brings this out is by saying... There is behind all human beings one root problem. Sin. And it is deeply rooted in Adam, the father of all Jews and all Hindus and all Muslims and all secularists. All those people have exactly the same problem. That's what this text says. And it's the problem they have in their rootage in the common ancestor, Adam, in whom they fell. Sin died, were condemned. And therefore now in this passage is shown to be one Savior. What Christ has done is put over against what happened in Adam as the only thing that will solve this problem. That's the point of this text. And it is a massively missionary text at this point. But let's, let's get this real clear. What this text stresses is not 
and this is true, it's just not what this stresses. Not that because of Adam, everybody in this room and out there sins today. And therefore needs a Savior from their sinning. That's true. Jesus is that Savior. That's not the point of this text. The point of this text is that that sinning and my condition have a deeper problem behind them, namely my union with Adam, my father, in whom I sinned and died. That's got to be solved. Now, let me just make sure you see this, even though we'll walk through this text much more methodically and carefully than I am now. I'm giving you a big picture today. I want you to see five of the places where over and over and over and over and over it says our connection with Adam is the problem. Not our private personal sinning only or most deeply, but the connection with Adam. So, verse 15, if you want to look at these as I read them. Verse 15, by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died. His transgression, we died. Verse 16, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. One sin, and we are condemned. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. One transgression, death for all. Verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. One transgression, Adam's condemnation for all. Verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He disobeys. I'm constituted a sinner. That's heavy. The problem with the human race is not most deeply that everybody does various kinds of sins. They're real. Everybody does do various kinds of sins. Romans 3.23 didn't stop being true. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's true. But that's not the biggest problem. They're real. They're huge. They're enough to condemn. But Paul is very, very concerned for us to see something deeper here. Behind all of our depravity, behind all of our guilt, behind all of our personal sinning, there is this mysterious connection or union with Adam, our father, who sinned, and we being in him in some mysterious way, also sinned and died and are condemned. Wow. If that's true, what kind of salvation and Savior do we need? We need the one that's described in these verses. It's the only one that will do. It's the only one that will do. What religion? Tell me. What aspect of Hinduism? What aspect of Judaism minus Jesus? 
what aspect of Buddhism or Islam can solve this problem. One way it can be solved for Jesus Christ to step in as the perfect second Adam and repair what Adam so damaged and do what he failed to do so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Now let me draw this out for missionaries. Indeed, for all of us who are evangelists and pastors or who care about our neighbors who may be very, very different than we are, the way they think, do not think, do not think, therefore, that the teaching of justification by grace through faith on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience imputed to us through faith. Do not think that the doctrine of justification by faith is a concoction of Western European struggles with a guilty conscience in the form of a depressed monk named Martin Luther. Sometimes portrayed that way. That the doctrine of justification is really uh, a Western thing. It Westerners struggle with this individual issue of, of uh, guilty consciences. And, and uh, most of the world doesn't experience life that way. That cannot be true. It is not a concoction of Western European thinking. It is not thought up and formulated by Martin Luther, who loved it and found his life in it. It can't be true for this reason. It is given, the doctrine of justification in Christ is given as a historical remedy in a real person for a real historical event that happened in our ancestor, Adam. That means this doctrine as the solution to that problem relates to everybody who comes from him. And that's everybody. Every people group in the world comes from Adam. And if Adam and our union with him is a fundamental problem, this doctrine is absolutely relevant for every people group any missionary will ever find. Anywhere, anytime. I think about this and dwell on it. Because in missions today, there is much talk about redemptive analogies and accommodation of truth to cultural thought forms. Let me say a word about this. So important. So important. This doctrine, as it is laid out in Romans 5, 12 to 21, cannot, I repeat, cannot be replaced by any redemptive analogy. None. For a very simple reason. It's not an illustration. It's not a myth. It's not an example. It is simply history dealing with two real persons and those who are from them. The first one is Adam. You can't replace Adam with some make-believe figure in another culture. You can't replace Jesus with some make-believe figure in another culture. There's Adam and there's Jesus, two historical people. Sin comes from one, condemnation comes from one, death comes from one. 
and righteousness and justification and life come from another. Jesus is the solution to the problem of Adam. And Adam is the father of all people groups everywhere. There is no analogy for this. This is history. This is reality. When you go, you go to tell this story. It's not the only story to tell. And there are other very important stories to tell about the way God did this. But this is an important one and a very, very crucial one. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, wow. What if you go to a people group, a neighbor, and they don't have any categories for this in their brain? No categories for a humanity so corporately united to its first ancestor that what became true of him in sin and condemnation becomes true for them. There are any categories for that. Or no categories for a Savior who lives a perfect life of obedience and by faith you become somehow grafted into that Savior so that you're united with Him and His righteousness becomes your righteousness like that sin became your sin. No categories. They don't, there's nothing in their brain that can even process that. What if you go to a people group like that? Guess what? You're that people group. I fully expect that before this three weeks is over, some of you will say or want to say, no way. Absolutely no way. Don't buy it. No way can I be guilty in Adam. No way can I be sinful in Adam. No way can I be condemned in Adam. That does not... There is nothing in my brain. There is no category of justice, no category of fairness, no category of righteousness, no category of grace in my brain that will let that be true. You're that people. In fact, there are many third world peoples that would have no problem with this at all. They got all the categories in place. We're the ones who are the missionary people on this score. There's some things our culture sets us up to understand in the Bible, and some things our culture sets us up not to understand in the Bible. And here's my plea. Come to the Bible to learn your categories. Come to the Bible to be taught categories. Don't just bring categories to the Bible. So I, I got a double word for missionaries. And we're all missionaries in this sense. Because America is a mission field in the sense that they don't have the categories to get this. I don't have the categories to get this. I am laboring like crazy to get my head inside Paul's head here. It is not easy to understand this text. What are you saying here? You really want us to believe this. This is really the way to understand Jesus. In fact, we won't properly understand the doctrine of justification and our union with Christ and His righteousness being my righteousness until we get the fact that I'm in Adam and His sin became my sin. We won't get it. We won't love Jesus until we see how bad it was with Adam. And I'm trying my best to just get this and let this little teeny puny American Western brain of mine get fixed so that I can tell you the truth and we can be useful to our culture and not a mirror of our culture. So here are my two things for missionaries. One, yes to redemptive analogies. Yes to accommodation. Where it's possible 
and helpful and allows a faithful rendering of the truth of Scripture. Yes. Okay? Yes. However, where there are truths that are so rooted in history and in persons like Adam and and Christ, no! (laughs) No to accommodation. No to redemptive analogies. There is no replacement of this connection between Christ and Adam that you can take to Papua New Guinea or to Russia or to uh, Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or Tanzania or UAE or China or any place. You, if, if you find there's no category, they don't even believe in a first man, maybe. They don't even believe in sin. They don't even believe in guilt or whatever it is. You don't just say, okay, we'll leave guilt out of the message. We'll leave, we'll leave Adam out of the message. We'll leave Jesus out of the message. We'll leave righteousness out of the message. No. You do what we're laboring to do in America right now. And this, this is why it may take so long to do it in a mission field. Because you not only have to teach the truth, you have to get the categories of thinking in place so that the truth will make any sense at all to people. Well, I'm done. And I just want to close with this. Some of you now have come in here and uh, you've heard this. And I just want to address you personally as we go. You've heard, number one, that the Bible says your deepest problem is not your own personal sinning, but your connection with Adam and the condemnation that came to you in and through him. And secondly, you've heard me say perhaps to your amazement, that the only remedy for this is the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who repaired what the first Adam did in that he became a perfect, obedient life and a perfect, obedient sacrifice so that there could be a substitute righteousness and a sacrifice for sins and you could be accepted and justified before a holy God And third, you've heard me say, and I hope the Bible say, that in Christ there is one way to get connected, and that is faith. Faith unites us with Jesus so that the righteousness he lived over against Adam's unrighteousness can be ours, so that that can be changed and we can be saved. You've heard me say those three things And you're saying to yourself, but Pastor John, I don't get it. I really don't have categories for that. It's just not making sense. My plea is this. Embrace it to the extent that you see it. Second, tell God right now as we close that you receive his salvation as partially as you do understand it. You receive it. Third, ask God, ask God with faith and in all meekness to give you whatever fuller understanding you need. And you know, God loves to save poor, hungry, desperate sinners. And you don't have to understand it all to benefit from it all. You don't have to understand it all to benefit from it all. Let's bow for prayer. So, Father, I pray that you would dismiss us now with 
um, a richer grasp of what our Lord Jesus has done for us, a deeper understanding of what our true problem is, that as we tremble and shake and struggle with what all of this means, you would grant light to shine in our lives and that because of what we've seen, we would enjoy our standing in righteousness before you through Christ and his obedience all the more. Oh God, come now, I pray, and accomplish these things for us. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed.